Well, hello there, and welcome to a rather he fever ridden version of the Archaeology News. Yes, it's myself, David Connolly here. A little bit stuffed up, but uh, still well enough to bring you the news from around the world. This news, of course, is brought to you in partnership between Stone Pages and the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources website, alongside the stupendous Past Horizons. All the stories have been collected from various sources, and to view the details in each story, including that all-important source, well, you'll have to go to the Stone Pages website and look at news.stonepages.com. It's going to be quite a busy month ahead for myself, in fact, two months ahead for myself, so uh, do bear with me if I am not as, uh, shall we say, uh, weekly as I would like to be. They'll be starting an excavation on the Nungate Wash House in Haddington. So if by some chance you're listening to this and discover that, in fact, you are near Haddington, well, why not come along and find out if I can uncover Haddington's dirty secret? We've got plenty of secrets, however, as the news. So without further ado, let's see what we have. Well, we've got iron in ancient Egypt. Actually came from outer space. Early Paleolithic sites are uncovered in northern China. And we've got thousands of prehistoric artifacts looted in World War II returned back to Greece. The scouts, yes, they restore the long man of Wilmington. Doesn't sound as bad as uh, that sounds. Anyway, uh, first ever prehistoric fashion show has been announced and an island off the Australian coast has been surveyed for signs of human life. Climate change. This is prehistoric style. And Apulian dolmens in Italy are under constant threat by vandals. What can we do about it? And why did our early ancestors take to two feet? We also then uh, go back to the good old Neanderthals and we've got news about how baby Neanderthals breastfed for seven months. The Bronze Age boat reconstruction is actually changing our view of the era and giving the archaeologists and the maritime archaeologists uh, something to really get their teeth into, understand how one of these boats worked. Because I, I myself, have always wondered how on earth did Bronze Age people cross seas in these uh, dugouts? Anyway, we'll find out. We have a submerged structure in the Sea of Galilee and it's supposedly stumping archaeologists. Well, not me anyway. And did Japanese fishermen reach America 5,000 years ago? You'll just have to wait and find out. There's also thousands of ancient cave paintings found in Mexico. And we finish off with, woof, yes, man's best friend. We've got new insights on prehistoric dog burials. Now, as I say got terrible hay fever, so you'll have to bear with me. I'll be sniffling and snuffling the whole way through. Iron in ancient Egypt. Well, after analysing a 5,000-year-old iron bead from Egypt, a team of specialists reached the conclusion that it must have been made from a meteorite fragment. The iron bead is shaped like a tube and was discovered in 1911 during excavations, if that's what they want to call them back then, at a cemetery at Gerze, about 70 kilometres from Cairo. Researchers realised the iron was particularly high in nickel, which is a hallmark of iron meteorites. The ancient Egyptians had been making these beads by hammering a fragment of iron from the meteorite into a thin plate and then bending it into a tube. Eight other tube beads were found alongside this one, all contain iron, and date back to 3300 BCE. In fact, this is the oldest iron artefact ever found in Egypt so far. 
The first evidence for iron smelting in ancient Egypt appears in the archaeological record only around the 6th century BCE. Only a handful of these iron artifacts have ever been discovered in the region from before then. And in fact, one of them comes from high-status graves such as that of uh, the pharaoh Tutankhamun. Iron was very strongly associated with royalty and power, says Diane Johnson, a meteorite scientist. Oh, don't you all wish that you could say that on your passport? Um, this meteorite scientist at the Open University in Milton Keynes, whose team performed the analysis. Campbell Price, who's a curator of Egypt and Sudan at the Manchester Museum, who was not a member of the study team, pointed out that during the time of the pharaohs, the gods were believed to have bones made from iron. So no, I wouldn't say exactly this is a sort of, you know, very common item. And in fact, uh, they've to the Egyptian, it would have been incredibly rare. Unfortunately, of course, when the Iron Age comes along, hey-ho. Now to the early Paleolithic in northern China. The Danjiangu area is a pivotal region for human migration and cultural communication between South and North China. The discovery of hominid fossils and abundant Paleolithic sites highlight its significant position within Paleoanthropology and Paleolithic archaeology of China. In 1994 and 2004, scientists from the Chinese Academy of Sciences conducted two surveys around the margin of the Danjiangku Reservoir in the northwest of Hubei province. And they found 91 Paleolithic open-air sites on various terraces along the river. In 2009, researchers carried out an excavation in the Guzhangchang 2 site, exposing an area of 500 square metres, uncovering 132 stone artefacts. These included hammer stones, cores, flakes and chunks, as well as scrapers, choppers, picks and hand axes. Sounds like the contents of my kitchen drawers there. Now, one that uh, I find very interesting has got a lot to do with actually with what's happening just now in the world with a, a desire to return artefacts back to the, the country of origin. An archaeological open-air museum in southern Germany consisting of reconstructions of stilt houses from the Neolithic and Bronze Age will return 8,000 pottery fragments from the Neolithic illegally excavated in 1941 near Velestino in Thessaly. The repatriation of Greek cultural artefacts is among Greece's demands for German reparations from World War II. This is according to the Foreign Ministry. The Ministry is collecting data for all antiquities illegally removed from Greece during the German occupation. The two ministries are working together on the formation of an international cooperation network through the signing of a bilateral agreement for the protection of cultural goods and the prevention of artefact trafficking. Greece has already signed agreements with Switzerland, China, the USA and Turkey. The negotiations are ongoing with several other countries for the signing of similar agreements. This is going to be one to watch. Could be fascinating. Now to uh, a rather smaller project here. The 72 metre high ancient chalk carving thought to be an Iron Age symbol of fertility has been repainted by British scouts. The Long Man of Wilmington in East Sussex in England was painted green during the Second World War so that German bombers could not use it as a landmark. Now, as part of a UK-wide project, 40 scouts have freshened up the man-shaped image cut into the South Downs. The origin of England's tallest chalk hill figure, one of the largest in the world, has puzzled historians and archaeologists for generations. 
It was once thought that the man, who holds two staves and appears in proportion only when viewed from below, was an Anglo-Saxon warrior or even a Roman folly. But some more recent research suggests it only dates back as far as the mid-16th century. The chalk figure underwent a controversial makeover in 2007 when, uh, wait for it, a hundred women gave the long man a temporary female form using their own bodies to add pigtails, breasts and hips as part of a TV fashion show. And this is my favourite bit. Angry druids protested over the disrespectful TV stunt and the Sussex Archaeological Society had to apologise for allowing the filming to take place. I can only imagine what an angry druid looks like. There'll be a lot of beard. Margaret Parham, chairman of South Downs National Park Authority, said that the Longman of Wilmington is an iconic figure in the South Downs National Park and they were very grateful that the local scouts were giving up their time to give him a facelift. Justin Barham, chief executive officer of Sussex Past, was most pleased. The world's first prehistoric fashion show is going to take place in London during the upcoming International Humanities Festival sponsored by archaeologists at the University of Southampton and the Natural History Museum in Vienna, according to a press release from the University of Southampton. The fashion show will display the use of pottery, metalwork and textiles created during the period 1800 to 500 BCE. That are the findings of a three-year collaborative research project called Creativity and Craft Production in Middle and Late Bronze Age Europe, fortunately shortened to SINBA. The Catwalk, or CNBA. The Catwalk collection has been created by Dr. Karina Gromer and Helga Rosel-Maltendorfer from the Natural History Museum in Vienna and was partly inspired by Sinba research into prehistoric textiles found in salt mines at Hallstatt in Austria. The wet, salty properties of the salt mine preserved the miners' clothing and accessories for thousands of years, making it possible to chart the development of textile engineering in Europe using the many artefacts that have been found at the site. An amazing site. I actually highly recommend that you just even Google that to have a look at the salt mines, the Hallstatt salt mines. The material that's coming out of it is just quite remarkable. University of Southampton archaeologist Dr. Joe Sofer, who is leading Thinba, says, I, I'm interested in finding out what drove Bronze Age people to make the leap from clothing, which was purely functional, to using clothes along with metalwork and accessories as a form of expression. It's well understood that the Bronze Age saw huge advances in techniques to produce clothes, pottery and metal objects, but the wealth of creativity employed when making these goods is little recognised or even researched. The clothing collections that will be exhibited at the fashion show demonstrate the intricate weaves, patterns and colours that these prehistoric people used in their dress. 30 costumes will be presented, worn by men and women and children from the Stone Age beginnings through the creative impact of metal jewellery and woven textiles in the Bronze Age, ending with the colourful costumes of the Celtic tribes from Central Europe. The idea is to display the development of clothing from a purely utilitarian function into an expression of art, wealth, status, identity and personality. Dr. Gromer comments that usually a picture of dull and attractive clothing comes to mind if we think about the people from prehistory. But they would like to show people that the people of the past, from the Stone Age and the Bronze Age, made the best out of the materials. They used patterns and colour and jewellery. They had style. 
They wanted to express themselves and their personalities. All the costumes are based upon real archaeological finds. It makes me think of myself, actually. Um, I suppose I, I go back to the ultra dull. I, I found a, a set of clothes that uh, suited me back in about 1980. It's black combats, pair of boots, uh, a shirt, usually a German army shirt. Um, well, that was it, really. Why, why change when I found something that uh, I looked good in? Perhaps I could learn something from these Bronze Age uh, fashionistas. Now, we're heading off to sunny Australia, where a new archaeological survey will investigate human occupation sites at Barrow Island, a 202-kilometre square island located 50 kilometres northwest off the coast of Western Australia. From the time it was joined to the mainland, between seven to 8,000 years ago. University of Western Australia archaeologist Professor Peter Veth, who has excavated ancient archaeological sites in the Montebello Islands over the past two decades, says that Barrow Island is the next logical place to look for sites of human occupation that probably ended as sea levels rose. We've been looking at the opportunity for recovering drowned paleo landscapes and sites for a long time, he says. You look offshore and you're going to get islands which were once part of the mainland, and they register oceanic sea level fluctuations, changing maritime systems, and a whole range of configurations of faunas, human economies, behaviours, which won't be the same as those that are retracted on the mainland today. Professor Veth says the team will be also looking for evidence of continuing Aboriginal presence between that time and the next known occupation, a 19th century pearling camp. So they're going to have one crew on what we call aerial open site survey. The second will be working on two rock shelters. The indigenous archaeology is quite substantial and should have good deposits. There's a third crew that will be looking down at Bandicoot Bay on the historic Perlin camp, and they'll be surveying the extent of the site and doing limited test excavations in the historic material area. The excavation team will employ what he describes as wet sieving, a newly developed technique designed to retrieve minute particles of organic matter, such as bone fragments, seed and charcoal on site. I wouldn't exactly say it's new. I mean, uh, good grief, I've been doing it for about 30 years myself. But they hope to get charcoal from the fuel from many thousand years ago and be able to date it. The three-week campaign is going to commence on the 27th of June, so hopefully we'll be coming back with news of how it went. Good luck to them. Now, this is an interesting one. It's climate change prehistoric style. In an extract from The Origin of the Species, Charles Darwin wrote that climate plays an important part in determining the average number of a species and the periodical seasons of extreme cold or drought seems to be most effective, uh, seems to be the most effective of all checks upon the numbers of a species. This theory, however, has now been dramatically proven by recent investigations into the cause of the extinction of the majority of major animals in North America, Europe and the Middle East 12,800 years ago. It has long been known that a major climatic event occurred at that time, but the cause is open to speculation. Now, yes, you know where this is going. A team from University College of Santa Barbara, headed by Professor in Earth Sciences James Kennett, you better know what this is about now, believe that they have found the answer. They've been examining small round objects known as spherules from dozens of sites across North America, Europe and the Middle East. Several theories have been 
previously proposed over the formation of these spherules from volcanic activity through to lightning strikes, even widespread fires. But the detailed analysis carried out by this team shows that their formation requires temperatures in excess of 2,200 degrees Celsius. Therefore, the only theory remaining, they feel, is a massive uh, cosmic shower. The impact of this shower would have had the effect of blocking out the sun and causing a dramatic uh, and extreme drop in temperature across the area. This would explain the rapid decline in large mammal numbers and also the disappearance of the Clovis culture, which depended on hunting these animals for survival. Oh, dear, dear, dear. In citing this paper, which was culmination of this research, James Kennett is quoted as saying, based on geochemical measurements and morphological observations, this paper offers compelling evidence to reject alternative hypotheses that the younger Dryas boundary spherules were formed by volcanic or even human activity. From ongoing natural accumulation of space dust, lightning strikes, or even by slow geochemical accumulation in sediments. He feels that the evidence continues to point to a major cosmic impact as a primary cause for the tragic loss of nearly all the remarkable American large animals that had survived the stresses of many Ice Age periods only to be knocked out by quite a recent catastrophic event. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. This is like a massive game of Comet Tennis. Now I'm going to say and hold my hands up that uh, quite a lot of this is completely beyond me. But if you really want to get into it, I would... Google, again, Google is your friend, and actually look at the two opposing theories. This has been going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Now, who am I to say which one is right or wrong? There are, shall we say, questions which can be asked of both the competing theories. I would just like to know a little bit more about, for example, if... It, it causes the, the disappearance of the Clovis culture, then why is it then there's a continuation of um, human occupation? It's, anyway, I will leave you to find out a little bit more. Now, I'm afraid we're heading off to uh, some sad news in southern Italy. Vandals are damaging and defacing a 3,600-year-old monument. Members of the Puglia Scoperta, a local cultural association, report that during their recent visit to La Cinecia Dolmen, Ciancia Dolmen, I should say, uh, several large rock fragments have been found inside the corridor leading to the main chamber. Still not clear if these fragments have been collected from the nearby dry stone wall and thrown into the dolmen, or if they are the result of heavy hammering to the sides of the stone monument itself. In any case, this remarkable monument now lies sadly covered in modern graffiti amidst piles of rubbish. It's probably the most famous dolmen, in fact, in southern Italy, and that is the state that it's left in. Located in Apulia, this megalithic monument dates back to the 16th century BCE and has been the focal point recently of many vandal acts. Over the last 15 years, the monument has been defaced by an amazing array of graffiti using many different types of markers, permanent black markers, correction ink, pen, pencil, even water-based colour markers. They haven't thought that one through, have they? In 1999, the dolmen was first cleaned by Giuseppe D'Aurelio from the Department of Physics at University of Bari using an innovative laser cleaning technique. Then the monument was restored again in 2007 when a team um, 
and she had to come and remove new graffiti with new laser science. Many other prehistoric sites in the region are under the same threat or are being neglected. And it is so sad to see how these vandal acts are getting worse. It's hoped that the mayor of the region will start to take serious steps to protect this and other ancient monuments in the area. In a way, you have to ask yourself the question, why are they being vandalised? Who are vandalising them? And how can they actually be brought in to be seen as part of the local? You don't basically vandalise something which means something important to you. So it's got to be right from the start in the schools. These sites have got to be looked after and cared for. They've got to be part of the local community. Anyway, I'll come off my soapbox and uh, take to my two feet, which is a good um, link to the next article. A new study by archaeologists at the University of York in the UK challenges evolutionary theories behind the development of our ancient and earliest ancestors from tree-dwelling quadrupeds to upright bipeds capable of walking and scrambling. The researchers say our upright gait may have its origins in the rugged landscape of the East and South Africa, which was shaped during the Pliocene by volcanoes and shifting tectonic plates. Hominins, our earliest forebearers, would have been attracted to the terrain of rocky outcrops and gorges because it offered shelter and opportunities to trap prey. But it also required more upright scrambling and climbing gates, prompting the emergence of bipedalism. The York research challenges traditional hypothesis, which suggests our early forebears were forced out of the trees and onto two feet when climate change reduced tree cover. Dr. Isabel Winder, one of the paper's authors, said that the broken, disrupted terrain offered benefits for hominins in terms of security and food, but it also provided a motivation to improve their local motor skills by climbing, balancing, scrambling and moving swiftly over broken ground. Types of movement encouraging an upright gait. Dr. Window continues that their hypothesis offers a new viable alternative to traditional vegetation and climate change hypothesis, or the climate change hypothesis. It explains all the key processes in the hominin evolution and offers a more convincing scenario than the traditional one. They do also admit, however, that there's a lot of work still to do. Now, oh... Yes, it's a baby Neanderthal that lived in what is now Belgium around about 100,000 years ago and started eating solid food at seven months old, revealing a new aspect of the evolution of breastfeeding. A new technique that uses elements in teeth helped researchers to determine when breastfeeding started and stopped. Breastfeeding is a major determinant of child health and immune protection. So it's important both from the point of view of studying our evolution as well as studying health in modern humans. Study researcher Manish Arora, a research associate at Harvard School of Public Health, said. Until now, however, no one's had an effective way of looking at bones and reconstructing breastfeeding theory. Uh, sorry, history. Aurora and his colleagues found that both in humans and macaques, the ratio of the elements barium and calcium in the teeth revealed what the baby had been eating when the teeth formed. 
Those part of the teeth that formed in the gums before birth have very little barium, Aurora said, probably because only a small amount of the element gets into the fetus through the placenta. After birth, however, barium spikes and stays high in the tooth. The profile changes again when babies or macaques start adding solid food to the diet of breast milk. You find that the amount of barium we absorb from solid foods such as vegetables and meats is different to that which is gained from breast milk. So in fact, what you can do is see the period which is exclusive to breastfeeding. Aurora and his colleagues tested their new method on a very, very old tooth indeed. They used a molar from Sclandia Neanderthal, a fossilised juvenile found in Belgium. Similar patterns as in humans and macaques appeared, a barium increase at birth, which stayed high until the Neanderthal was seven months old. At that point, the tooth indicated the Neanderthal baby had gone into a transitional diet, consuming breast milk supplemented by solid food. The pattern is one that today's parenting experts would likely approve. The Neanderthal's mixed diet continued for seven months until 14 months of age when the baby abruptly weaned. No one knows what happened, Aurora said. It's possible the Neanderthal became separated from his mother or perhaps the mother got pregnant or gave birth to a younger sibling and cut her older child off. So far, they have tested only this one Neanderthal and they aren't sure whether its weaning pattern is typical of the species. They would very much like to do this on more Neanderthal samples and even beyond Neanderthal samples onto other extinct primates leading up to modern humans. The goal would be to create an evolutionary map of breastfeeding practices amongst the primates. This line of research could reveal insights into the long-term health effects of breastfeeding in general. Now, <laughs> Professor Van de Neurt, along with shipwright Brian Cumby, was the driving force behind a project to build the first full-size replica of a boat used around British shores 4,000 years ago. Hewn from solid oak, that's the boat, not myself, at the National Maritime Museum in Falmouth and launched in March this year, the volunteers who undertook the labour, along with several archaeologists, put the boat through its paces this week. Using specially crafted paddles, 19 men and women were guided in the fine art of powering seven tons of wood through the water. The short voyage was hailed as a triumph of collaboration between academics and artisans. Remarkably stable and relatively quick for its size, the crew was able to manoeuvre around buoys and other vessels with ease. Professor van der Neurt, who is based at the University of Exeter, said he was delighted with the results, adding that the project had proven the enormous value of experimental archaeology. She moves well in the water, perhaps better than expected, he said, with a sparkle in his eye. I just added that bit. One thing that they have learned is that she sits high in the water. It's likely that she could actually carry a lot more load than had first been thought. The boat took a team of 50 volunteers 11 months to construct. The bulk of the hull was cut using bronze adzes from two huge oak trunks. One shaped, they were sewn together using yew withies and sealed with moss and tallow. There are now plans to conduct further experiments to help build a clearer picture of Bronze Age travel and transportation. It really puts it uh, into perspective when you, you hear these stories about sort of great trade backwards and forwards. The Bronze Age is a time when, in fact, materials from the Baltic are found in Greece. Tin from Cornwall is moving into the Mediterranean as well. I'm not saying that the boats were actually doing these massive voyages, but they were able to go backwards and forwards across 
quite large expanses of open water, down rivers, following coastlines. This is going to help greatly in uh, perhaps uh, expanding our ideas of Bronze Age Europe. <coughs> Pardon me. Now, a massive circular structure at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee in Israel has puzzled researchers who have been unable to excavate it. Now, archaeologists are trying to raise the money to allow them access to the submerged structure, which is made of boulders. The monumental structure with a diameter of 230 feet emerged first in a sonar scan in 2003. Archaeologists said that the only way that they can properly assess the structure is through underwater excavation, which is going to be a slow process, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Most of the researchers' limited knowledge about the structure comes from the sonar scan that took place a decade ago. In an article published earlier this year, Nadell and fellow researchers disclosed that it was asymmetrical, made of basalt boulders, is cone-shaped, and lies at a depth of around about 40 feet beneath the surface. Its base is buried under sediment, and the authors conclude that the structure is man-made, made of stones that originated nearby. And in fact, if you were to try and weigh this <laughs> this lump of stone, they're feeling that it would come in around about 60,000 tonnes. The author writes it's indicative of a complex, well-organized society with planning skills and economic ability. Yitzhak Paz, an archaeologist with the Israel Antiquities Authority, who's involved in the project, said that based upon the sediment build-up, it could be anywhere between two to 12,000 years old. However, based on other sites and artifacts that are found in the region, Paz places the site's origins somewhere around about the 3rd millennium BCE, so about far, we're going to go about four to 5,000 years old. Although he admits the time frame is just a guess. Now, this is again a rather exciting piece of news. Differences and similarities in pottery decorations can offer clues about cultural relationships over space and through time. Residues on pots reveal important clues to how people use the pottery. An international team of scientists last month reported chemical analysis of the charred interiors of surfaces of pottery shards from Yomon sites in Japan and found it was mostly com um, composed of oily residue from cooking ocean fish. Meanwhile, the largest ever genetic study of native South Americans recently identified a subpopulation in Ecuador with a rather unexpected link to Eastern Asia, concluding that Asian genes had been introduced to South America sometime after 6,000 years ago, the same time that the Jomon culture was flourishing in Japan. You see where this is going? Ocean fish, ability to uh, fish in the ocean, potential to get to South America. Curiously, and I know quite a bit about this, it was back in the 1960s that Smithsonian archaeologist Betty Meggers argued that similarities between the pottery of the contemporaneous Valdivia culture in Ecuador and Japan's Shomon culture indicated that there was a great potential that Japanese fishermen had discovered America around 5,000 years ago. Writing in the 1980s, Meggers expressed frustration that transoceanic contact as an explanation for cultural similarities was dismissed by dogmatic colleagues as cult archaeology, and she complained that no amount of evidence would ever convince them. This latest discovery as an apparent genetic link between the Eastern Asians and Ecuadorian natives provides intriguing independent support for Meggers' hypothesis. One thing you do have to add to this is... of. I think she's being a bit unfair saying no amount of evidence. She 
in a way, instinctively felt that there was a connection, but you really have to actually sort of move forward, gain more evidence, gain more evidence. And the result is, well, she may indeed be right. Staying in South America, well, in fact, Central America, I should say, archaeologists in Mexico have found 4,926, an exact figure, well-preserved cave paintings in the northeast region of Burgos, previously thought to have been inhabited, not, um, I should have said, not inhabited by ancient cultures. So that's a bit of a shock to them. The images in red, yellow, black and white depict humans, animals, insects, as well as skyscapes and abstract scenes. They've been found at 11 different sites, and the walls of one cave are covered in over one and a half thousand separate scenes. The paintings suggest at least three groups of hunter-gatherers lived in the San Carlos mountain range, and experts hope to chemically analyse the pigments to find out more about their date. So from none to three tribal groups. That's not bad. Now it's our last story. Um, analysis of ancient dog burials finds that the pr typical prehistoric dog owner ate a lot of fish, had spiritual beliefs, and wore jewellery. Um, tell me more, tell me more. How did they know this? The study is one of the first to be directly test if there's a clear, clear relationship between the practice of dog burial and human behaviours. Dog burials appear to be more common in areas where diets were rich in aquatic food because these same areas also seem to have had the densest human populations and the most cemeteries, so says lead author Robert Losey, an anthropologist at the University of Alberta in Canada. The discovery negates speculations that dogs were just work animals brought along on hunting trips if the practice of burying dogs was solely related to their importance in procuring terrestrial game. We would expect to see them in the early Holocene, about 9,000 years ago, when human subsistence practices were focused on animals. <coughs> Pardon me. Further, we would expect to see them in later periods in areas where fish were never really a major component of the diet and deer were the primary focus, but they are rare or even absent in these regions. Lossi and his team researched dog burials worldwide, but focused particularly on the ones in eastern Siberia. The earliest known domesticated dog found their dates to around about 33,000 years ago. Dog burials in the region span a 10,000-year period. Most occurred during the early Neolithic, 7,000 to 8,000 years ago. Dogs were only buried when human hunter-gatherers were also being buried. However, all of the hunter-gatherer dogs were similar to modern Siberian huskies. Later pastoralists did not bury dogs, though they did occasionally sacrifice them. Lothi thinks that hunter-gatherers saw some of their dogs as being nearly the same as themselves, at least on a spiritual level. The burials reflect that association. One dog was laid to rest, much like it was sleeping. A man was buried with two dogs, one carefully placed to the left of his body, the other to the right. A dog was buried with a round pebble, possibly a toy or a meaningful symbol, placed in its mouth. Other dogs were buried with ornaments and implements such as spoons and stone knives. One of the most interesting burials contains a dog wearing a necklace made of four pendant red deer teeth. Such necklaces appear to have been the trend at the time since people wore them as well. Well, I said that was the last story, but I've got a little beauty for you as well. This one's all about uh, a fabulous collaboration, an online digital exhibition, which will also be seen at Scarabray itself in Orkney. It's uh, even by one of my 
um, I'm going to call him a friend, a lovely person called Kieran Baxter, who did absolutely amazing kite cam and will hopefully be coming, doing something for myself in the next uh, couple of months as well. But anyway, the three of them, Alice Waterson, Kieran Baxter and Dr. Aaron Watson, sorry, have been doing this collaborative project, bringing together three visualisation specialists with diverse methods and mediums of working. Together they have created this amazing uh, digital online exhibition. It's a work in progress and film moves from the present day to the imagined past with remote aerial perspective and an embodied encounter deep within the walls of the village from an objective interpretation to creative storytelling. The Neolithic site of Scarbray, located on the mainland of Orkney, uh, was first surveyed in 2010 by the Scottish 10 project using laser scanners and photogrammetry. But they have taken it to a, a new perspective. They do kite camera work, which zooms in to the, the present day before you dive into one of the early houses. There's some amazing images where you almost see through the eyes of a person in the past. Hands reach out and guide you through the darkness. Images distort. It's it's uh, amazing. All I can say is you're going to have to go and have a look at this. So to find it, and the best thing to do is actually go to, uh, it's called, what's it called again? Vimeo, the um, so the high-class YouTube. Go to Vimeo. Type in Digital Dwelling at Scarabray. So that's Digital Dwelling at Scarabray. Put it up full screen. Sit back. Make sure it's on high definition. And watch this 6 minute 55 of uh, art meets archaeology meets interpretation. Absolutely brilliant. Well, that is now definitely the end of the news. Can I remind people that many new archaeological and heritage employment opportunities, as well as a UK heritage calendar, library, guidance section, and more can be found on Badger, www.bajr.org. And you mean you've never been to Past Horizons yet? What is stopping you? PastHorizonsPR.com for all the latest news and articles while Past Horizons tools. Yes, you've guessed it. If you want the best archaeological tools... Uh, from from the best archaeologists, myself included. Oh, I'll go to hell for that one, won't I? So modest. Then you're going to have to go along to pasthorizonstools.com. And remember, you can always find more at the fantabulous Stone Pages. That's news.stonepages.com. So thank you so much for listening to this archaeology news. I did actually almost make it all the way through without coughing and spluttering. And I hope to get back to you at least in about, shall we say, give me 10 days and give me a chance to recover from the digging the dirt in Haddington. Until then, 